I'm Ben Perry, and this is Mild Spoilers, a solo conversation show about my favorite movies of 2023. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mild Spoilers. This is episode number four, and I'm your host, Ben Perry. This episode, we're going to change things up a little bit. Uh, This past weekend, I had to take a trip out of town. Did did not get to see any films this weekend, unfortunately. As I look at the upcoming schedule, I am backed up now, so I'm going to have to go into overdrive the next couple of weeks to get caught up. But this week, we're going to go into my favorite films of 2023 as we get closer to the Academy Awards this season. Um, I hope you're all catching up on the 2023 nominees so when the awards come, you have all the information you need to fill out your ballots and we can compare later on. The list I'm going to use for this is from my Letterboxd, my top films of the year from 2023. If you want to follow me on Letterboxd in the show notes on this episode, you will find a link to that and my Twitter account and also the Instagram for Mild Spoilers as well in those show notes. So the list includes 14 films. Um, There were obviously a lot more films that came out this year and a lot that didn't make the cut. Um, Some of the films that are on the list were, say, release date 2022, but they actually came out in 2023. So we're going to start with number 14, and that is Infinity Pool, coming to us from Brandon Cronenberg. This film was, I don't even know how to describe it. It was out of this world, uh, just insane, Uh, just like you would expect from any Cronenberg My review states, and I'll read it exactly, says, As I sat watching the credits roll, I tried to put into words what I was feeling. The only thing I could muster was, I need a shower. But I loved it. That film made you want to take a shower afterwards, but it was creative, it was thoughtful, it was beautifully shot, it was beautifully acted, and it was out of this world insane. And coming from a Cronenberg, that's what you want, that's what you expect, and that's what you get. Coming in at number 13 is a film by Franklin Rich called The Artifice Girl. The tagline reads, she's not real, she's more than that. And this film is exactly more than that. Um, I'm not sure where I got the recommendation to see this film, but I am so glad I did. It is phenomenal. Um almost the perfect sci-fi when you think about science fiction films it's on the along the lines of ex machina but this didn't quite edge it out but it's close this film um it's broken into three different acts and three different rooms essentially and each act represents a room and i i don't know without giving away too much I can say that it starts in a room with two agents of some bureau. We don't know which bureau they're from. 
interviewing a twitchy and kind of all over the place 29-year-old person. The dialogue, the editing, the camera movement, they're all exemplary. The reveal of what the film is totally at the end is well hidden within the subtext, but until the director wants us to know, then it's sprung on us. Phenomenal film. I definitely want you to check it out. The next film on the list is John Wick Chapter 4 from Chad Stahelski, the supposedly last film in the Keanu Reeves John Wick pantheon. This film was over-the-top amazing. Long, but didn't feel that way long. Uh, Stunning set pieces. Amazing actors from Donnie Yen to Yuki Sonata to everyone. And just fantastic. Um, The Dragon's Breath fight from the RPG angle. The stairs. The Eiffel Tower. All of it is just fantastic. I don't know where to go from this. I could go on and on and on about this, but just incredible. Bill Skarsgård and Rina Sawayama and Ian McShane, all of them, just fantastic. If you haven't seen the John Wick epic, see them all. Start with the first one and make your way to the fourth. Number 11 on the list is The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne. Um, Payne is one of my favorite directors. Everything he's done, I have fallen in love with in some way, shape, or form. And this one is definitely no different. Um, It seems like he's making movies just for me. He's got that 70s aesthetic, the character study, the real-worldness of what he's trying to convey in his films. Um, he knows how to get the very best at Paul Giamatti, and this is definitely no different. Giamatti is out of this world. Uh, newcomer Dominic Sessa in his first role on the big screen blows it out of the water. Devine Joy Randolph, awesome as well. Um, it's just a great character study on three people suffering internally and externally, but trying not to show it. It's heartwarming. It's funny. It's hard to watch at times. It's exactly what Alexander Payne is all about. The next film at number 10, and I'm surprised it's as low as it is on the list, but that would be Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. I had a blast watching this film. Um, There was a stretch in the second act that kind of... was drawn out for me a little bit too long. If that would have been shorter, this would probably be higher on the list. But Emma Stone, who will probably win Best Actress uh, between her and Lily Gladstone for sure. But she was incredible. And I don't think anyone else could play this role like she did. Um, Just incredible. Uh, Mark Ruffalo puts in a performance that is nothing like he's ever done before. And some of the funniest parts are from him, but he's also one of the most disgusting characters I've ever seen. So kudos to him for doing what he did so well. Um, The whole story of what it's about, it's crisp, it's clean, it's fun. It's also introspective. The set design is surreal. Um, 
everything about this film is just out of this world in great ways. And I don't know the, the way the camera moves and the angles that Yorgos and his cinematographer use are creative and interesting. Um, it's everything I want from a trip to the movies and then some. The next film on the list, and this one I'm perplexed by because it's one of my favorites from Wes Anderson, and that's Asteroid City. Um, before that, it's been the Royal Tannenbaums for me as my favorite from Wes and his stable of actors, but there was something about this film that uh, from the start to the finish just had me sucked in, and I'm not sure if... I'm different in that I've aged so many years since the Royal Tannenbaums or if it's the way that Wes has aged and he's making films, but no one makes films like he does. There's only a small handful of directors that can be recognized for that style so efficiently. And he is one of them for sure. I've been a fan of his for so long, not obsessive like a lot of people are, but I enjoy every one of the films he does until this one where he blew me away. The humor is on my level in every single way. I laughed out loud so many times when others in my screening didn't. And this film has so much star power that it could potentially be drowned out by all the star power, but not in the hands of Anderson. These actors are so well integrated into the film. Their roles, that's impossible to forget who they are. It's just in less capable hands, it's a train wreck. But in Wes's hands, it's a triumph. If you can see this film on a big screen, if it comes out again, you have to. If not, please watch it at home. Number eight on the list is The Iron Claw, directed by Sean Durkin. Um, Zach Efron, Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, Holt McElhaney, Maura Tierney, Lily James, so many actors in this film. And you think a film about wrestling would not be able to hold your interest, but because of this story, which is a true story, it's so compelling. You are locked in from the second the title card hits to the end. It's, um, it's a trip down emotional lane for sure. Um, the trauma that happens in the film. And I will say this being mild spoilers and all, happens towards the end of the film. So you're kind of in this, you're being lulled into a false sense of security. And then all of a sudden, Durkin and the crew just let you have it and it doesn't stop. It doesn't give you time to grieve. It just keeps on pummeling you. And then the last scene hits and that's when that release happens. And all of that grieving that you've been accumulating throughout the runtime is just released. And man, brilliant acting, Phenomenal needle drops, especially from Rush. Great camera work, amazing stunt work. And Zach Efron, I mean, kudos, man. He, he pulled off a transformation physically and in his acting style that I didn't think was ever possible, but he's phenomenal. Outstanding film, one of my favorites of the year, but it did not crack the top five. My next film is one of those ones that was released in 2022 and probably on a small amount of screens, but it wasn't widely seen until 2023. And that is the small independent film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Daniel Goldhaber. Uh, 
And I, I don't know what to say about this film besides it's definitely one of the best American suspense thrillers I've seen probably since the seventies or eighties. It is so taut with tension. The synth score that plays almost throughout the film, it just ratchets up that tension. Each scene gets more and more tense as we move on. I feel like modern filmmakers would benefit a lot by watching this film if they want to do some kind of thriller because, I mean, in the short amount of time, about an hour and 45 run uh, run time, they made me care about every character and every little thing that happened. From the second it started, I was on the edge of my seat and I didn't leave that edge until the time the movie was over. Do whatever you can to watch this film. It was mind-blowing. Pun intended, for sure. Number six is Anatomy of a Fall by Justine Trier. The tagline is funny. It just says, did she do it? And the answer I don't think is given in the film. It's open to interpretation. I think that's the way that Trier wanted this to be because it's not about did she or didn't she. It's about why relationships fall apart and why they struggle. And I think that's the big takeaway from this film for sure. Um, the acting from the dog all the way to Sandra Huller, who is two for two this year or in 2023 this year in films, this and the zone of interest, a tour de force performance. Um, she is the only suspect in her husband's death. And the only quote unquote witness is her blind son, Daniel played by Milo Machado Grainer and the dog. And that's it. It starts off as a family drama. And as we move on, it morphs into a courtroom drama. It's something I haven't seen before. And that's what I look for when I see films and think of the best of the year. Wow me. Show me something I haven't seen and do it in an expert manner. And that's what this film does for sure. Number five, and I myself am shocked that this isn't higher because I am a David Fincher freak and we're talking about The Killer from Netflix. I got to see this on the big screen and I am so lucky I did because this film deserves it because the sound design deserves that sound and the visuals deserve a large screen to show off what Fincher and all of his crew have done with this film and the first time I saw it I was a little bit underwhelmed I think I was just so amped to see this film but then I watched it again at home and that's when I fell in love and that's when I cracked the top five because it's another masterpiece he Fincher just knows how to push my buttons when it comes to film he does it for sure um the meticulous nature of the main character is Fincher to a T. The killer reminds us constantly of his mantras throughout the film, first and foremost in the stunning opening scene with the killer as the narrator setting up the world that he lives in. But why is he doing it is the quick question we, we find out right away. Why is he reminding us of these things? And as the film unfolds, we learn exactly why. 
Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, he's back to pen this adaptation um, of the French graphic novel series, which was a pretty big graphic novel series, if I'm not mistaken. And again, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross fill our ears with their noises, their music that just drive this film. But the soundtrack that the killer uses is the real driving force for me. Um, some people I heard and read that they were kind of sick of what the the soundtrack was like, but not me. It made the film for me. The sound design, doors opening and closing, the ambient sound of life around the killer, the audible cues we as the audience are meant to pick up on. Uh, they're just, it's a masterclass in filmmaking, just like David Fincher is one to do. It's beautiful to look at. It doesn't treat the audience like an idiot. There are no exposition dumps, no lingering on backstory. It assumes that we are all smart enough to see what is going on. It's not the best film of his by any means, but it is a great film. And you can call me a Fincher fanboy if you want. I really don't care, but he's that good. Number four, another lesser seen film another direct to netflix film this did not see the light of day on a screen that i know of but it definitely deserved it that is jewel taylor's they clone tyrone talk about genre bending film i would have paid so much money to see this in the movie theater but it was lost in the ether of netflix and based on word of mouth it got some good views and a lot of good reviews but not as many as it should have. This film was a breath of fresh air in a smog-filled crap heap of direct-to-streaming movies that we see every year. It's sharp as attack writing, acting on a whole other level of greatness, and a story that will make any genre fan happy. And I'm not saying which genre, because you need to find out for yourself. This film was a nod to the Hughes brothers, to Spike Lee, to Gordon Parks, to Melvin Van Peebles, and so much more. It's obvious that Jewel Taylor is a fan, but he doesn't copy. He expands on that genre bend that we're talking about. John Boyega, who is the star, is just incredible. Um, probably one of my favorite roles since Attack the Block. Tayana Paris, just shedding the the marvel uh, cape that she has on to portray a phenomenal character with a story arc that is just beautiful and jamie fox just hilarious i don't think i've ever seen him this funny before it every scene he's in he steals it is quite the sight to see it's a tad too long. I've seen it a couple of times. There's a little bit of fat that I think I could trim off. But overall, what a fun time. Watch this film. Tell your friends about it. Let's make this film and this director be known because we could see some really cool stuff coming down the pike from this guy. The next film, and I recommend this film to anyone. I don't care if you like Godzilla or not. Godzilla minus one. For a Godzilla film to make me cry three different times, it has to be a special film. For the tiny budget that they had to make this film, I don't know how they accomplished what they accomplished, and I don't care to know. I just want 
Hollywood to take note of what you can do with good story with IP. Because if you tell us a good story, it doesn't matter that it's intellectual property. I don't care. I will care about the characters, and that's all I want. It's kind of ruined me for seeing Godzilla X Kong because now I just want to see Godzilla films that I care about, and I just don't think I'll care about any of that. But this film was heartfelt. It was scary. It was kind of like what Jaws was when I first saw Jaws. Um, To watch Godzilla follow a boat peeking out of the water was terrifying. And the special effects were out of this world. See this. See it again. See it again. Let's get more of this, please. To my surprise, and probably to the surprise of a lot of you, my number two film is Oppenheimer. Um, Christopher Nolan's masterpiece of a film. Um, and I think what I'm going to do is just read my review of this film because I don't know if I could talk about it just off the cuff without pausing so many times to think of the right words. So we'll go with my review. Trying to formulate my thoughts after my second viewing is akin to the scientist portrayed in this film trying to figure out quantum electrodynamics on the fly. As the film does, I will break this down into two parts, technical and substance. Technical. What Nolan has achieved here is not only one of the most influential films of the decade, but it is a culmination of his whole career which seemed to have led to this from day one. Oppenheimer has elements of all Nolan's films, even following. The subject matter of this film couldn't have been a better bookend to Tenet if you tried. One is about trying to unmake a world-ending weapon. The other is about the creation of one. The parallels write themselves. And we can thank Robert Pattinson for incepting this idea into Nolan's mind. From the opening shot, Hoyte van Hoytema sets the tone of the film Using 50mm for his wide shots and 80mm for his close-ups, we are immersed in the world through his eyes. Van Hoytema even had custom lenses produced by Panavision to his specifications. Seeing this film on IMAX screens is not imperative, but if you can, you will see the vision of this incredible man. I thought Greg Frazier was one of the, mo- the best modern cinematographers, and he still is one of the best. But with Nope and now Oppenheimer, Van Hoytema has surpassed him. What can't be said about Ludwig Göransson that hasn't already been said? This composer is creating some of the most memorable scores of our generation. I've heard comparisons to John Williams. It's not only the pulsating music that Göransson creates, it's also the quiet moments where he truly shines. The music forces you to feel. That is special. A composer that can do that is special. A three-hour film that feels more like two has a lot to do with the editing, and Jennifer Lame does a masterful job of cutting Nolan's vision into what it became. It's frenetic without feeling sloppy, it's tight without feeling rushed, and it's breathy where it needs to be to give us a reprieve from the superlatives I've used before. Nolan gets a ton of guff from the film community for so many different things, 
his timelines, his twists, his sound design, on and on and on. But one thing keeps happening. He keeps making stellar films that people go to see. With Oppenheimer, it may be time to put them all to rest. It's cohesive to the point and masterful in its storytelling. Two, substance. Casts are getting out of hand. That's no joke. But it doesn't have to be a bad thing. See Asteroid City, as I talked about before. And what could have been fraught with a bloated cast, Oppenheimer shines with it. Everyone has their role because that's the way the casting and Nolan wanted it. These parts were written exactly for them, and it's obvious from some of the line deliveries that the writing worked for each actor. Josh Hartnett, give him a lead role in a drama, please, and do it quickly while this performance is still fresh. As Ernest Lawrence, he was almost unrecognizable in a good way, and he takes his part and runs with it all the way to the bank. Benny Safdie as Edward Teller is a revelation. I wouldn't be surprised to see him in more features soon. David Desmalchin, one of my favorite actors lately. Give him bigger roles, please. He's incredible with the way he uses his face to act the crap out of scenes. Florence Pugh, I've heard a ton about Nolan's deficiency in female characters, and I understand because I can see it as well. But Florence Pugh takes the role of Jean Tatlock and sinks her teeth into it, no matter how small of the part it is. And in the grand scheme of Oppenheimer's life, she was a huge influence on him, and it showed. Robert Downey Jr., tortured by geniuses, RDJ gives Strauss a false superiority, superiority complex, hiding his utter inferiority complex next to mental giants. Give this man an Oscar and more roles like this. Please. Emily Blunt, if this film weren't called Oppenheimer and Nolan hadn't taken it in the direction that he did, this would most certainly be the best actress role of the year. Blunt plays Kitty Oppenheimer, a genius in her own right, with a lot of pain. It's written all over her face and behind her eyes. And with limited screen time, Blunt really captures the relationship she had with Robert. And that scene in the gray room is show-stopping material. I don't know if she'll win an Oscar for it, but she should. I can watch that scene over and over and over. Killian Murphy, finally a leading man role for him. A man that should have had a leading role eons ago. And of course, it took the sixth time collaborating with Nolan for it to happen. Putting all this together couldn't have been easy. And putting it together as gloriously as this whole team did takes an army. Each of the three acts feels different from the others, but are all cohesive. The tension ramps up and explodes and just keeps on ramping up and exploding until the final shot. This film delves deep into the shouldn't we, should we category and the eventual moral quandaries after the fact. That aspect of creation is rarely discussed, let alone portrayed in films. And the torture that some of the scientists attached to the Manhattan Project lived after the fact is real. And it can't be understated how important that feeling was for the future of regulation. There's an exchange between Oppenheimer and Teller. He says, they need us until they don't, Teller quips back. And that is a harbinger of what's to come in the third act. But also the apple and cyanide, which really happened supposedly at Cambridge. Oppie's moral quandary started back then as he rushes back to the classroom to stop the apple from being eaten. All of this equals a masterpiece in my eyes and my mind and my heart. 
The second viewing just proved to me that Nolan does as a filmmaker was important for those that love film. Well, this is but one story of one man. I implore you all to read the book this came from and dig deeper into the history and learn about the brilliant women and men that were part of this historical event. I don't like to read reviews like that, and especially for this platform, but I think that one needed to be read because I feel so strongly about that film. Which leads me to my number one film, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. The reason this is number one over Oppenheimer is for the sheer fact that after the movie was over, I sat in the theater, I bought a second ticket for a second viewing directly after. I don't do that very often, even with Oppenheimer, because I had to digest so much. But this film was so amazing in every way. The animation, the the voice acting, the story that was being told, the little things that... Uh, before the movie even started, there's a cough in the bottom right-hand corner that pops up. And it's just the little details. They thought of every little thing that anyone could ever think of when it came to making a comic book movie and especially on this scale with a character that is so beloved by everybody especially me as a kid and I'm still scared of spiders but I wanted to be spider-man because of that fear of spiders and I've loved him since I was a small child and to see the different iterations of spider-man on screen and especially in these animated films is awesome and if they stick to landing with number three this might be one of the best trilogies of all time full stop in any way shape or form not even talking animation just in general because the first one was groundbreaking the second one built on it and if the third one sticks that landing the sky is the limit for what this will do to the genre and what this will do for animation, for the history of time. I mean, the frame rates they used for Spider-Punk are completely different than the frame rates for everyone else. And not only everyone else, but different parts of his body. There were different frame rates that were filmed. like Just sheer genius in every way, shape, and form. I, I, I will keep going on and on and on about this, but... We'll give a, just give a quick little synopsis of my thoughts on this film. The 13-minute cold open that is about Gwen, who's not even the main focus of the film, but to open with 13 minutes of that character and to cry in the first 13 minutes because of that story. How do you do that? That is just incredible. And it's 13 minutes of time that they could give to other characters, but they focused on Gwen and thank goodness they did because her story arc when it's finished might be one of the best story arcs ever when it comes to comic book film history. Just incredible. Um, I can liken it to Ahsoka Tano's um, story arc from Clone Wars through Rebels. Um, Still to this day, probably one of the best female character story arcs in any media, any way, shape, and form. But this one's getting close, that's for sure. And Jason Schwartzman, who plays The Spot, he's going to be a major part of the third one, but he's a small part of this one. But what he says in this one, the little lines he gets, 
they resonate within everybody, or I would think they would. And I want you to focus on that if you watch this film because of what I'm talking about here. Focus on the little lines that he says. They're off the cuff and mostly for comedy, but there's a lot of pain in his words. Just just check it out. Um, Spider-Man 2099, uh, it, all of it. it uh, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. This is a five-star film, in my opinion, and I can't wait for the next one, which may be another year from now, but we'll see soon. So there you have it, everyone. This has been my top films of 2023. I want to thank you so much for being here. I know this is a long episode and my review episodes aren't this long, but I thought this one was important to get off my chest as we get closer to the spring and summertime when movies are going to be going crazy. So I hope you gleaned something from all this and I hope you see some films because of it. And if I spoiled anything for you, I make no apologies because this is Mild Spoilers. <laughs>